0: Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the 18th Sunday after Trinity, October 3rd, 2021, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612 824 5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran aflc.org. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read our Old Testament lesson appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. can be found on page 4 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Modern Christians have this habit, maybe we can call it a reflex instead, that as soon as the Bible starts talking about creation, we insist that it does so to combat evolution. Now, to be sure, evolution isn't true, and we as Christians should and can combat the teaching of evolution from Scripture. But I have insisted for some time now that we don't even need Scripture to combat evolution. Sure, it's useful in refocusing us in and on our Creator God, on our designer. But the main problem with evolution is not that it's a competing world or worldview to Christianity. The main problem with evolution is that it's simply bad science. We shouldn't even let it get to the point where it's a competing worldview with Christianity. In fact, as that and it has become clear in scientific communities. Evolution has morphed into what really has happened all along. It's simply another religion. Evolution requires just as much faith to believe as Christianity, even more for that matter. And and so, in passages like Genesis 2, where we are this morning, we can tip our cap to those who are passionate about disproving evolution, and we can pause to appreciate their efforts. But it is my contention that in Scripture passages like our Old Testament lesson this morning, evolution is not the error that should be on our minds. It's not the primary message that God is delivering to the church. Rather than evolution, God would have us here be concerned about a different error, about a different heresy. And that would be The teaching of Gnosticism. Now, if you're not familiar with that word or that teaching, it's because Gnosticism is something that's not talked about much in the church today, and that's a very real problem. First, because every time you confess one of the three creeds we use to confess our faith, you're doing so standing against Gnosticism over and above all other heresies. But maybe more importantly... The church needs to talk about Gnosticism because if I were to pick one error that the American church consistently falls into, it's the error of Gnosticism. To define it, Gnosticism is the false teaching that came into prominence right at the end of the writing of the New Testament and essentially it teaches that anything created or anything material or anything tangible is evil. It's not necessary because only that which is spiritual matters. And so flowing from that, the Gnostics of the first and second century taught that the God of the Old Testament was a separate and evil deity and he was cruel because he created things as physical beings and so introduced suffering into the world. But the God of the New Testament is a good God, because this God is spiritual and enlightened. And so what you have in the church, in in the days of the early church, are two extremes for the Gnostics. On one hand, you have the Ascetics, the people who deny the need for any created thing, any material pleasure that exists. It's the people who go out into the desert and live as hermits with only the bare necessities in life, in the various forms of that. On the other hand, and quite contrary to what we would expect, you have the hedonists, those who say that because the material world is of no consequence whatsoever, let us indulge in pleasure because only the spiritual matters. And we've seen this cycle in the church over and over and over again. Because of the spiritual emphasis of Gnosticism, the second big problem is a preoccupation with hidden, mysterious forms of communication from God. You see, the problem you run into in the church is that the Bible is tangible. It's physical. You can hold it into your hand. And so the church, at various times and in various places, including right now, is obsessed with spiritual, direct communication from God instead of the concrete, objective word of truth. This is the problem where Gnosticism rears its ugly head today. Now, I could literally spend all day on these criticisms of the American church and Gnosticism, but that's enough set up for now, Because we need to get back to our Old Testament lesson. And passages like Genesis 2 and confessions like our creeds are designed to keep our focus on the nature of who God is and what he does. The creeds and the word of God are designed for us to keep first things first. And so this morning we're going to turn our eyes back to Genesis 2 and examine how this section of scripture refocuses us on first things article blessings on first estate gifts but most importantly how it helps us keep first things first and so first article blessings how much thought do you put into your confession of the first article of the apostles creed when you recite it here at church i believe in god the father maker of heaven and earth Do you think about what that means, or does it just roll off your tongue automatically? Or how about in just a few minutes, when we all recite the first article of the Nicene Creed together, are you going to think about this phrase? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. Those two statements are among the most simple things that we confess. And so we probably don't spend much time meditating on them. And it sometimes disappears into the oblivion of our minds just to be uttered on a weekly basis. It's a little bit of a shame that the first articles of our creeds are so simple and concise because I think we end up moving on from them far too quickly. These statements are profound And profoundly important confessions because they clue us into the reality that God operates in creation to sustain and to nurture and to bless us. And that's exactly what's going on here in Genesis chapter 2. Even at the dawn of creation, Adam had a need. Even before the fall into sin, Adam had a need, he needed a helper. He needed a compliment, a companion, a partner. And none of the animals who lined up at Adam to be named was suitable to do this. And so God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, which, to be honest, on a Saturday night is not hard to make a guy do. And as Adam slept, God performed impromptu divine surgery on Adam, removed a rib, and fashioned a woman out of that same substance. This is our first real clue about the miracle of life and the importance of human companionship. Consider that man and all of the other animals were formed out of dust by God. God breathed life into man. But woman, woman was not formed out of dust. Woman was formed out of the life God had made man into. It's a unique and special relationship. It's a beautiful picture of God operating in his creation to provide for us. It was exactly what we are doing when we confess the creed, when we confess that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The importance of God's creation to our lives as human should be self-evident, but we always seem to minimize it as we chase more spiritual pursuits. But consider the structure of our catechism. Without giving away the point of my message too much, commandments 4 through 10 of the 10 commandments govern how we operate in creation among our fellow humans. The first article of the creed deals entirely with God's blessings in creation. And the fourth petition turns the reality of the first article into the central prayer request of the Lord's Prayer. When we pray together at the end of the service, give us this day our daily bread, we are praying for God to operate in creation on our behalf. We live our lives as created beings in reality, and God meets us in reality to provide for us, to bless us, and to sustain us. In fact, It is in this reality that we also encounter what I'm going to label as first estate gifts. One of the most important gifts Martin Luther gave to the church during the Reformation was a reordered way to look at human life in the created world. For far too long, the Roman Catholic Church had overemphasized spiritual callings, teaching people, or teaching that people who became priests or monks, or nuns, were more spiritual and therefore more blessed by God and more pleasing to Him. But Luther emphasized the doctrine of vocation, which teaches us how the law impacts our lives as believers. And it comes down to this. God doesn't need our good works, because He's God. He doesn't need anything. We don't need our good works. Because we have been given in Christ everything we need for life and salvation. So what about good works? Our neighbor needs our good works. And this is how God operates in his created world. Daily bread comes from the hand of God. It doesn't magically appear, but it comes from God through our neighbors. So, knowing now that we need to love our neighbor, the next logical question is to echo Scripture. Who is my neighbor? And this is where Luther emphasized the teaching of the three estates. The three estates show us where it is we find our neighbor. The first estate is the family. The second estate is the church. And the third estate is the rest of society around us. And in these three estates, we find not only the structure for loving our neighbors and the boundaries, but we find order for all creation. And what this means then is that everything in human life, in creation, is structured and patterned after and built on the foundation of the family. When the family exists, as God has designed it, the rest of creation is ordered accordingly. And again, this is what we see happening here in Genesis chapter 2, quite directly. God met Adam's need by providing him not with just any companion or helper, a golden retriever would have worked just fine for that, but God provided Adam with a wife. Eve was the perfect complement to Adam. And a part of this perfection is expressed in the ability to procreate, to have and establish a family. The other two estates, church and society, are built on and patterned after God's design for the family. And what is interesting and tragic about this reality is that the church at least the church of today, has so idealized this structure at times that we've flipped to the other side and alienated those who come from broken family structures. The church for a large swath of time has not helped those who have been abused. We have not cared for compassionately those who have been divorced or betrayed or harmed in some other way. Even those who are single can be belittled by an unhealthy overemphasis of what God is looking for with the structure of the family. But all this hangs in balance and can be remedied when we turn our eyes back to Scripture and the real emphasis here. The emphasis for us to put first things first. Our fight against Gnosticism and the proper teaching and emphasis of God operating in creation to bless His creatures begins and ends with the reality that we have a flesh and blood God. Now, at various times, I've read stern encouragements or warnings from smarter Bible teachers than I am not to allegorize passages like this, not to make them too symbolic. Teach the reality of the passage before jumping at unnecessarily linked uh, lengths to artificially point to Jesus. This especially happens, they say, in books like the Song of Songs, where the historic church has used that part of Scripture to move away from romantic love to describing the relationship between Christ and the church. But here's the thing. All we need to do is to look at Scripture itself to learn that's exactly what God wants us to think here. I'm gonna give you an assignment today, an assignment I can't grade, and I can't even particularly hold you accountable for. We all know that's a great way for making sure assignments get completed. But, on your own time, read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, and compare it directly to what's happening here in Genesis chapter 2. For all purposes, I'll give you a little bit of a head start and quote verse 32. When when teaching about marriage and the the marriage relationship, Paul writes this, this mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and to the church. Passages like Ephesians 5, In the book of the Song of Solomon and in Genesis 2 here this morning, Jesus and how he relates to his church is the reality that our marriages and families are built on. For our purposes this morning, it comes down to the glorious reality that we have a flesh and blood God who not only provides for us and orders and structures our lives, but especially who saves us. As the incarnate Son of God, Jesus can take Adam's words about Eve and speak them about you and about me and about His entire church. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And it is that reality that our entire eternities are based upon. Jesus, flesh and blood man, came to save us. And Jesus, flesh and blood God, came to forgive our sins and to conquer our enemies of sin, death, and the devil in our place. Jesus, the God of the entire universe, emerges from the tomb Victorious, still our flesh and blood God. Dear saints, the glorious reality of our God today and every day is that He is not only a God who operates in creation to bless us, but He is a God who enters creation to deliver us, to deliver to us life and salvation and eternity. Just ask Rowan. God entered into his creation, took water, attached his word to it, poured it on Rowan's head, and made Rowan his child. Just come to the altar, and there you'll find Jesus' body in blood, given to you for the forgiveness of your sins. And the outcome of all of this this morning is the same as the outcome of Genesis 2. The beauty of the, innocent, of the intimate innocence between Adam and Eve, who are both naked and not ashamed, is the beauty that describes you as you stand in the presence of God. Because of Jesus on the cross and in your place, you stand now before God completely innocent, forgiven and declared righteous, unashamed, because your sin belongs to Jesus. Because when God looks at you, He sees Jesus in your place. And all of this is simply because of Jesus your flesh and blood Savior and your flesh and blood God. Amen. And now may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.